Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Ukraine does not have the resources for a counteroffensive. So a senior Ukrainian government official told the Washington Post that Kiev doesn't have the resources to pull off a big counteroffensive in the coming months, as Ukraine is lacking skilled troops, munitions, and other equipment. So this official, the, the Post quoted them, called them a senior Ukrainian official who spoke on the condition of anonymity, said, quote, if you have more resources, you more actively attack. If you have fewer resources, you defend more. We're going to defend. That's why if you ask me personally, I don't believe in a big counteroffensive for us. I'd like to believe in it, but I'm looking at the resources and asking with what? Maybe we'll have some localized breakthroughs, end quote. So this official said that Ukraine does not have the people or the weapons to pull off a counteroffensive. The official said, quote, and you know the ratio, when you're on the offensive, you lose twice or three times as many people. We can't afford to lose that many people, end quote. So the Washington Post also spoke with a Ukrainian battalion commander who went by the name of Kupol and detailed the grim situation on the front front lines. So this battalion commander said that his battalion previously withdrew from the town of Solidar, which is just a few miles northeast of Bakhmut, where the real heavy fighting has been going on. Russia took control of that town, Solidar, in mid-January about. And he said his battalion, you know, consisted of 500 troops, 100 were killed, and about 400 were, were wounded, leading to a complete turnover. So he's like the the only one that that made it from his original 500 is what he's saying. And now he's being sent combat soldiers with very uh, with no combat experience. So soldiers with no combat experience and very little training. He said, quote, this is a long quote. I'm going to read from him, but it's worth it. Uh, he said, quote, I get 100 new soldiers. They don't give me any time to prepare them. They say, take them into battle. They just drop everything and run. That's it. Do you understand why? Because the soldier doesn't shoot. I ask him why, and he says, I'm afraid of the sound of the shot, end quote. So that, I mean, uh, you know, it's an anecdote from a, a Ukrainian battalion commander, but I think that's pretty, that really shows, you know, the kind of soldiers that are being, the kind of people that they're sending to fight in these battles. Uh, And, you know, there's been a lot of reports like this. This isn't the first one. And this Washington Post report said that Ukraine has sent an influx of draftees to replace more experienced soldiers who have been killed or wounded. It said that as more Ukrainian men who haven't volunteered to fight uh, are fearing that they're going to get called into battle, Ukraine's security services shut down telegram accounts that were helping Ukrainians avoid locations where authorities were handing out draft slips. So that's some way, I guess, some people were getting out of the draft. I uh, was tracking, you know, where they were handing out the slips and, and uh, you know, Ukraine's cracking down on that. It seems like a lot of these people don't, that's being sent in, you know, don't want to be there. Uh, Kupol said that Ukrainian forces were also fighting with very little ammunition. 
He said, quote, you are on the front line. They're coming toward you and there's nothing to shoot with, end quote. So again, I mentioned there's been a few other reports like this, including the Kiev Independent, which is Ukrainian media, very pro, you know, has a very pro Ukrainian government line. But even they had a report recently speaking to Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front lines who said they had no ammunition, you know, lack of training, and they, they weren't getting support from artillery and things like that. And so, again, you know, Ukraine is taking heavy losses defending Bakhmut, but it's keeping a tight lid on the casualty numbers. A German official told the Washington Post that their estimate is that Ukraine has suffered 120,000 casualties. That's including dead and wounded. I think the number could be a lot higher than that because that factors in the wounded. But I, I just, you know, I'm not one to to throw out a guess, you know, but it does seem like a lot of people are being killed. And despite these dire conditions, Kiev is still sending untrained soldiers into what has become known as the meat grinder in Bakhmut. The battle is still going on. All right. Uh, the next one here, China's Xi to speak with Zelensky and meet with Putin. So this is interesting. Uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, he plans to speak with Zelensky for the first time since the Russian invasion of Ukraine was launched. This is according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. And this report said that Xi is also planning to meet with Putin in uh, in Moscow next week. And it looks like he's going to meet with Putin and then hold a call with Zelensky. So it indicates that Xi is looking to mediate between the two sides. And it comes after Beijing released a 12-point peace plan for the conflict. And that focused on calling for a pause in fighting and a resumption of peace talks. So Zelensky, when China first put this 12-point plan out, Zelensky expressed an openness to it, but it was dismissed by President Biden and other U.S. officials. Biden rejected altogether the idea altogether the idea of China mediating an end to the war that would not just be beneficial to Russia. But China's mediating credentials, they just got a major boost after Iran and Saudi Arabia announced that they plan to normalize relations. That agreement was brokered by China. And again, they, they, didn't, they haven't had uh, regular relations since 2016. So it's pretty significant that China was able to mediate that. So who knows, maybe they'll make, hopefully, you know, I think it's always good when these countries, you know, I know Turkey has tried, even Israel had tried in the beginning, Naftali Bennett, the uh, prime minister, who was the prime minister of Israel at the time, you know, he detailed how he was, you know, talking with Putin and talking with Zelensky and then how he said that the Western powers uh, eventually blocked his his efforts. Um, so, you know, I think maybe this could be a good sign, although the next story uh, isn't a good sign when it comes to peace talks. The Kremlin says that Russia's goals in Ukraine can only be achieved through military means. So the Kremlin said on Monday that Russia's goals can only be advanced, you know, by fighting at the current moment. And they ruled out the idea that peace talks were possible. So this is Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman. He said, quote, for us, the absolute priority continues and will always remain the achievement of the goals set. At the moment, they can only be achieved by military means. So far, there are no preconditions for the transition of the process into a peaceful course, end quote. So he was responding to remarks from a uh, veteran German diplomat, Wolfgang Wolfgang 
Isch, Ischinger, and he uh, formerly served as the chair of the Munich Security Conference. So Ischinger suggested in an op-ed, I believe, that it was time for the Western countries to think about a peace process and establish a contact group to work toward negotiations. But at this point, the U.S. and other Western countries are still leaving the issue of potential peace talks up to Zelensky. It's all in Zelensky's hands. And Zelensky and his top aides, they maintain that peace talks cannot happen until Russia is driven out of all the territory it controls, including Crimea, even though the Pentagon thinks that's an unrealistic goal. It's still what they're holding on to. And Dmitry Kuleba, who is the Ukrainian foreign minister, he said that talks can't happen until there's war crimes tribunals. So the preconditions are till Russia's driven out and there's war crimes tribunals. Um, so it's just a non-starter for negotiations. And then you have Russia saying, it seems like Russia has given up on the idea of peace talks earlier in the war. They were, you know, signaling they were open to them for, for a while, for a pretty good amount of time, up till about September of 2022. You know, they still said that they were open for talks, but, you know, once they annex those territories and 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 have been saying, you know, any peace deal hinges on us keeping these territories. I think they made up their mind that they're going to keep going. But hopefully, who knows, something changes here. Obviously, Ukraine's not in a good position. And maybe she, uh, Xinping, can can get something going there. Um, and again, I just actually mentioned in this article how the U.S. and, and the Western powers had discouraged peace talks in the beginning of the war, March 2022, April 2022, when they had a real chance, when Russian and Ukrainian negotiators, they met several times in Belarus. In Istanbul, they were talking virtually, but it looks like the West wanted to prolong the war, of course, to weaken Russia. And now Ukraine's in this horrible situation. All right, the next one here, this is something. An ex-U.S. Uh, official says that the U.S. might bomb Taiwan's semiconductor factories if China invades. So this is Robert O'Brien, and he was Donald Trump's national security advisor from 2019 until. Trump left office in 2021, and he has said that the U.S. would destroy Taiwan's advanced semiconductor manufacturing facilities if China launched a successful invasion of the island. So O'Brien said this to Semaphore. He said, quote, the United States and its allies are never going to let those factories fall into Chinese hands, end quote. O'Brien, he served as the, oh, sorry, I just said that the time that he was the national security advisor. Uh, but he drew a comparison to the British bombing of the French naval fleet off the coast of Algeria in 1940 during World War II. And they bombed this fleet to prevent the ships from coming under the control of Nazi Germany. And this British bombardment killed nearly 1,300 French soldiers. Uh, O'Brien said, quote, the Brits did, didn't allow the French fleet to remain intact so that it could have potentially gone to the Germans and changed the balance of power for the Battle of the Atlantic, end quote. So that's what he's comparing it to. I mean, that insinuates that even if there's Taiwanese people there, you know, just they must be destroyed because uh, they don't want these uh, China getting control of these uh, factories. And O'Brien said that because Taiwan is home to the most uh, to most of the world's advanced microchip factories, if China took control, he said it would make them like the OPEC of these chips and it would give Beijing more control over the world's economy. 
And he said that he could not imagine that the factories would remain intact if China took the island. O'Brien, he's not the first to float the idea of the U.S. bombing Taiwan's chip factories in the event of a Chinese invasion. A paper published in 2021 by the U.S. Army War College suggested that the U.S. and Taiwan should plan scorched earth tactics that could render Taiwan, uh, this is how the paper put it, not just unattractive if ever seized, if ever seized by force, but positively costly to maintain. The paper said that this ta tactic could be done, quote, most effectively by threatening to destroy facilities belonging to the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the most important chip maker in the world and China's most important supplier, end quote. And uh, Bloomberg actually reported in October 2022 that there are some former U.S. officials with ties to the Pentagon that want the Biden administration to devise a plan to destroy Taiwan's chip factories. And O'Brien could be one of those uh, former officials, although I don't know if he would have ties to the Pentagon. But, you know, he was a Trump guy, but he's not like a Trump guy. He's not like I don't think he's been like ostracized like some of them have. Um the Biden administration, you know, they've also been taking action against China's semiconductor industry. They're trying to cripple, like right now with sanctions, they're trying to cripple their, their semiconductor industry by blocking exports of advanced technology needed to produce the advanced chips. And the U.S. isn't just putting these export controls in their company. They're pressuring other countries to do it. And the Netherlands, you know, they export some of this technology that's needed uh, and they've agreed to restrict the exports against China. So it's kind of this new economic war against China that seems to be uh, ramping up as well. And of course, this is a major part of all these tensions with the U.S. and China is the sanctions. I should cover it more. It's just there's been so much to cover. I used to try to focus on the economic side of it more. But I know the U.S. is also trying to convince Japan to do this. And these sanctions that the U.S. put on recently to target China's chip industry apparently had a pretty... Uh, serious impact. So, you know, I don't know. Wouldn't you think that if China has trouble making their own chips, it might give them more motivation to take control of Taiwan? I don't know. It just doesn't seem like they think these things through. Uh, but I think that's something. I mean, basically saying if China, you know, if we can't have Taiwan, we're going to destroy it. You know, it's most valuable resource is what the U.S. is saying. I think that's, you know, because th does that apply? What if they don't invade? Not, not that I think this would happen soon, but what if in the future China and Taiwan come to some agreement that Taiwan becomes part of China, you know, they keep autonomy or whatever it is in the U.S. Is the U.S. going to bomb the factories then? Um, so anyway, the next one here, China appoints a new defense minister who is under U.S. sanctions. So on Sunday, China named their new defense minister, Li Shangfu. He is a general who has been under U.S. sanctions since 2018 for overseeing China's purchase of Russian military equipment. The U.S. sanctions on Li could hinder the already delicate dialogue between the U.S. and China. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, he, he was holding talks with Li's predecessor, Wei Fanghei. Uh, you know, a few months back, they met in person. They, they had some phone calls. But since the Pentagon shot down that Chinese balloon that we learned floated over the U.S., Due to unexpected weather, uh, they haven't spoke. Uh, Austin told CNN uh, back in February, on February 23rd, he said that he has not spoken with Wei for a couple of months. 
So already dialogue is not good. And then now you have this general coming in to be their new defense minister who's under U.S. sanctions. Why is he going to want to talk to the U.S.? And he was targeted with these sanctions while he was the head of China's Equipment Development Department, which acquired Su-35 fighter aircraft and S-400 air defense systems from Russia. So they sanctioned China for buying Russian weapons, which is just pretty ridiculous. Uh, seems pretty ridiculous. And they sanctioned them un under this law, the, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act that was passed in 2017. And the U.S. also used this law to sanction Turkey's weapons acquisitions agency because they purchased Russian S-400 air defense systems. You know, Turkey, a NATO ally, it doesn't matter if you do, you know, buy something the U.S. doesn't want you to buy, they sanction you. And I think this shows, this demonstrates, you know, how sanction happy the U.S. has been uh, in recent years that they're sanctioning pretty high level officials in China. And now their defense minister is under sanctions. Um, so, I mean, this, the pertinent thing to do for the Biden administration, obviously, would if they care about this dialogue, would be to lift these sanctions on, on Lee. So we'll see if they do that or not, if they're serious about the fact that they want to keep maintain communication with china um but i don't know we'll see and I, i'm sure if biden did something like that you know he people in Cong hawks in congress would go after him for you know being soft on china or whatever um the next one here china's xi jinping vows peaceful taiwan ties so this is from the south china morning post and china's been holding their two sessions which is a annual meeting of the national people's congress and then the the top political advisory board. Um, uh, it's an annual thing that they do called the two sessions. And there's been a lot going on there. That's where they appointed this defense minister. Um, but this is according to the South China Morning Post. Beijing has shown a cautious stance on Taiwan policy through throughout its annual par parliamentary sessions trying to play down speculation that the island would become the next Ukraine as cross-strait tensions rise. China will actively promote the peaceful development of cross-strait relations, President Xi Jinping told the nation's top legislature on Monday, days after securing an unprecedented third term. Um, so he's there, FDR. External interference in separatist Taiwan independence activities would be resolutely opposed, she added. And he vowed to unswervingly promote the reunification of the motherland. So you have, uh, sorry, I was just going to read an ad. Uh, his comments were met with loud applause from the National People's Congress, whose deputies endorsed the extension of his tenure by unanimous vote on Friday. Later on Monday, so China has a new premier, Li uh, Kang. Kiang, I might get that wrong. Uh, he emphasized that compatriots on both sides of the Taiwan Strait were one family. So they're, uh, and they restored cross-strait exchanges. There's a Kuomintang delegation, that's the opposition party in Taiwan that visited China recently, and China sent a delegation after that. So basically, this is saying that she and the Chinese leadership, you know, they're, they're trying to maintain that they don't want a war over Taiwan, which it's not in their interest you know, that they seek peaceful, what they call reunification above all else. Um, but also while still making clear that they're not going to back down on the issue, you know, in, in the face of the U.S. doing what they're doing. Um, all right. So the next one here, the U.S., U.K., Australia, they unveil the AUKUS submarine deal. So this is a pretty big deal. Uh, I covered it 
briefly a couple days ago. But on Monday, the U.S., Britain, and Australia unveiled their plans to develop nuclear-powered submarines under AUKUS, which is a military pact that the three countries signed in September 2021 to coordinate coordinate on advanced military technology against China. So it was this big show, uh, President Biden, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, and Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, they announced the plans at a U.S. Navy base in San Diego that had some submarines behind them. And the ultimate goal of this is for Australia to begin producing this new type of nuclear-powered submarines known as the SSN AUKUS. But that's not expected to happen until the 2040s. So this is a very long-term plan. So the first part of the plan, Australia is going to embed personnel with the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy to, for training on these submarines. And then the U.S. plans to increase submarine port visits to Australia. In starting in 2027, both the British and American navies will begin forward rotations of submarines to Australia. So that means they'll have a more permanent, not technically permanent, but a more regular presence than just, you know, port visits. In the early 2030s, the U.S. will sell three of its Virginia-class submarines to Australia with the option of selling up to two more. By the late 2030s, the U.K. plans to deliver the first British-built AUKUS submarine, followed by the Australian-produced version in the 2040s. In all, an Australian military official said that Canberra expects to spend up to $245 billion on this initiative by 2025. So it's over a long period of time, but it's just an enormous amount of money. And of course, Biden, Sunak, and Albanese, they framed these plans as necessary to uphold the so-called rules-based order. That's what we always hear these days, the rules-based order, which is basically the U.S.-dominated world order that these Western powers think China's activities in Southeast Asia are uh, a threat to, and that's why they're establishing, they want to establish this submarine force. Uh, so it's a big, of course, from China's viewpoint, it's a provocation because obviously these submarines are going to be able, be used to patrol waters near their shores. And this is part of the U.S., you know, bringing in London, bringing in Europe to, to prepare for future war with China, building up these blocks, you know, this new Cold War you know, that we're basically that we're in right now. Um, yeah, so that's that a lot of money. The next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, the US and South Korea kick off war games as North Korea tests submarine launched missiles. So tensions on the Korean Peninsula are spiraling. Pyongyang has launched two missiles from a submarine while Washington and Seoul have opened massive military drills in South Korea. So they started these big drills called Full Eagle, and these are the largest such drills that the two countries have held since 2018. So tensions are really high. You know, North Korea is, uh, you know, issuing a lot of warnings, and it, they're probably going to... So they did the submarine launch, and I bet there's going to be more. I bet as these drills go, go on, we're going to see more North Korean missile tests. And it's funny, Kyle included this, that According to The Hill, U.S. intelligence agencies concluded last week that North Korea had been timing its missile tests to coincide with joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. Like, I mean, it took U.S. intelligence. They just figured that out now. It's been so obvious that their missile tests are a reaction to these war games. Um, you know, it's just funny. But 
anyway, uh, just no, no, no sign of slowing things down. And I also believe, you know, a lot of these bomber deployments that the U S is sending bombers to South Korea, uh, they're going to be sending drones, Reaper drones, I think for the first time to the Korean peninsula for part of these drills and the Reaper drones. I mean, they have ideas to use them for, for battle, you know, in the Pacific islands, like the, the Marine Corps might use them. So I think a lot of this is about China too, uh, beefing up, you know, the, their military presence on the Korean peninsula. Um, so I think it's definitely uh, part of it. Uh, all right. I left up the one yesterday about that report that said, uh, seven, civilians were killed in Somalia by a U.S. airstrike because, of course, it's not really anywhere else. And so I might leave it up for a few days um, just to get it get it out there. Uh, but that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Grant Smith about uh, how Israel and its lobby and its U.S. lobby dealt a major blow by the China-Saudi-Iran peace initiative. Uh, so go check that out. One from John Walsh. Oh, so there's actually another anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. this Saturday, March 18th. So if you're in the area, it is uh, this this article is from John Walsh about it. Uh, I believe it's at 1 p.m. at the White House. Uh, it's mostly, you know, organized by progressive organizations, including Answer Coalition, Black Alliance for Peace, Code Pink, the People's Forum, and a bunch of other organizations. We're actually, Antiwar.com is a sponsor of it. So is the Libertarian Institute. So, yeah, if you're in the area, uh, I should have uh, been talking about it a little more. But, uh, you know, the big demand is peace in Ukraine, neg negotiations, not escalation, abolish NATO, which is good to me. No war with China. I'm happy that they added that in. That in. It's a few other things. End the siege on Syria, which is a good one. And AFRICOM. Uh, so, yeah, go check that article out from John Walsh. There is one from Ron Paul about the hearings. The House Democrats attack messengers and politicization of government hearing. Uh, that's about Matt Taibbi and um, I forget the other guy's name. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, who had their that crazy uh, hearing, if you saw any of that, in Congress. One from Caitlin Johnstone. The drums of war with China are beating much louder now. And uh, it's a good article. She quotes uh, some tweets of mine in there. And so go check that out at her Substack. And then uh, the spotlight is from Chris Hedges, Ukraine's death by proxy over at his Substack. Uh, so go check all that out. And uh, you could always go into the blog. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we post a lot of videos too in there and, and other people's uh, shows uh, like the Ron Paul Liberty Report. We have theirs about the, the deal that China made. It's always good to hear what uh, him and uh, Dan McAdams have to say about things like that. Uh, so go check out the blog and you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate, like, and subscribe on YouTube, rumble, odyssey, share the show around. If you listen to audio rate and review, I've been noticing there's been a few more ratings and, uh, and, and that's good. Uh, keep it up. Uh, I appreciate all the support, all the comments and stuff. Uh, that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.